Jesus' name. Everybody say amen. This passage of scripture is meaningful to me this morning, so I'm going to do my best here. As a means of introduction, I want to just give you a really, really rough layout of the Gospel of John, because I think that John's going to introduce us to John the Baptist with some intentionality. I just want to show you that as we move forward. We find ourselves in the morning, this morning in the middle of John's prologue, or his introduction to his Gospel, We've said so far that John's really writing with this kind of poetic style. It's very beautiful. And up to this point, he's just showed us the the majesty of Jesus. Jesus has been the eternal Logos, the, the God who always was, who had no beginning, has always been in perfect, intimate relationship with the Father, um, always was, always will be. It's been beautiful doxology. And then as we read this morning, it's almost as if John is going to jerk us because we'll leave talking about the majestic Messiah who's eternal in nature and we'll begin to talk about the man, John the Baptist. It feels a little bit shaky um, from a literary perspective. We want to ask the question, why John the Beloved, John the Disciple, would insert in his prologue, in this, again, doxological um, presentation of Christ, why he would insert an introduction about John the Baptist? So quickly, here's a layout of John's gospel. Again, really rough layout. John's gospel is pretty much shaped around seven signs. Um, obviously, seven being a number of completion. John 20, verse 30 through 31, it gives us um, kind of a thesis statement to John's entire gospel. This is towards the conclusion, where John says this. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John says, Jesus did many signs, lots of signs. But these signs that I've written here, they are written so that you may believe and that by believing you would have life. The goal of my gospel is that you would hear these signs, believe, and that in believing you would have everlasting life. Now look at John 21, verse 25. This is the last statement of John's gospel. Now there are many um, other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. In other words, John's saying again, there are many other signs and miracles and wonders that Jesus performed. If I tried to write them all for you, I'd fill the whole world with books. So John writes seven signs. The gospel kind of shapes itself around seven signs. First, Jesus turns water into wine. Every sign carries these theological doctrinal implications. Water being turned into wine. Old religion being turned into the wine of the Spirit. Christ takes what seems plain and mundane and makes it sweet. Then Jesus heals an official son. He heals at the pool of Bethesda. He feeds 5,000 people with just a few loaves. Jesus walks on water. He heals a man born blind. Then the pinnacle sign of John's gospel is this. Lazarus lays in the dead, in the grave for four days dead. And Jesus comes and tells him, get up and come out. So the gospel is laid out according to these signs. Surrounding the signs are these kind of discourses that will continue to draw out the themes. So picture Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus being a religious leader. And Jesus having a discussion about what it means to be born again. You must be born again. This is where we get John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So that whoever believe in him may not perish but have 
everlasting life. So again, John says, I write these signs so that you may believe and have everlasting life. And then he shows you this conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, and where Jesus says that God loved the world and gave his only son so that you may believe and not perish but have everlasting life. So there are very concise themes and an appointedness to John's gospel. Imagine Jesus at John 4 at the well speaking to the woman. He asked for water. She says, sir, you brought nothing to draw with. And Jesus says this, if you knew the gift of God, who is it saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So here in this dialogue, Jesus asked a woman for water. She says, you didn't bring anything to draw with. He said, if you knew who it was talking to you, you would ask me and I'd give you living water, everlasting water. See, you can kind of feel the themes unrolling. Then in John's gospel, there are planted these seven I am statements. Um, remember when Moses says to God in the wilderness, what's your name? Tell me your name. And God says, I am. And so seven times in John's gospels, Jesus utters these words, ego and me. Greek means I am. So he says, I am, ego and me. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I'm the good shepherd. At, at Lazarus' resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Then it concludes with this one, which is my favorite. John 18, this is where Jesus is in the garden in Gethsemane. Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, he comes forward and says to the men who are preparing to arrest him, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, Ego and me, I am. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So imagine this in your head. Jesus says, who is it that you seek? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, literally in the Greek, he literally says, ego and me. And as soon as he utters those words, the men literally fall back to the ground. So we see that through the seven signs, Jesus walks on water Jesus heals, Jesus feeds the multitudes with just a few loaves. We see through these signs, Jesus is superior. Jesus is Lord. He doesn't obey the laws of creation. The laws of creation obey Him. He is the I Am. And through the seven I Am statements, we see that I am the door. The only way to come to everlasting life is to come through me, the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection. And I am the life. So, so John, in John's language, he is building a witness. Um, and so the signs and the miracles, he writes them so that you may hear and believe that Jesus is God. And in, that, in believing you would have life. The seven I am statements that he records are very clearly so that you would recognize that Jesus is the I am of the Old Testament. He is Lord. And what we find this morning is that in the introduction, as he's already showed us thus far, that Jesus is the Word of God, the everlasting, eternal, co-equal, co-eternal Word of God alongside of the Father. Now he's going to interrupt this beautiful, poetic introduction and introduce us to the man, John the Baptist. Because what he's going to show us in John's Gospel, John the Baptist never preaches. John never says, John the Baptist preached. He always says, John the Baptist witnessed. 
Because John, the man, John the Baptist, is a witness alongside the signs and the wonders. He is a witness alongside Jesus' own words where he says, I am. He is a witness alongside the Father's words when the Father says, This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. The man, John the Baptist, witnesses alongside all of creation that testifies to the Lordship of Jesus. Man is invited in to to the symphony of all of these signs and wonders and prophecy and creation and the Father's own words which testify and declare Jesus is God and Lord and Master. And your greatest aim in life, the greatest call on your life, the most significant thing you could ever accomplish is to join that symphony and declare the Lordship of Jesus. Let's read. We're going to read John 1, 1 through 8. But we're going to study this morning specifically verses 6 through 8. You guys with me so far? I'd be preaching if you were asleep. So y'all just... (laughs) In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 6, this is where we'll start this morning. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. Now, First, I want you to notice the interruption to the prologue. I want you to feel the dramatic jerking of the text where we read, um, all things were made through Him, Messiah Jesus. Not anything that was made was made without Him. He is eternal, the eternal Logos of old. He's the light that shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And then to feel the jerk, there was a man He describes Jesus with this high language. We're in high theology. He is the mysterious and majestic God of all creation. Nothing that was made was made without Him. All things hold together in Jesus. There was a man. There is a sharp distinction between the nature of Christ Jesus and the nature of John the Baptist. There was a man... Sent from God. John was a man like us. He was not deity like Christ. Yet he was sent from God as an obedient servant. The greatest thing you could be called to is to be sent as a servant. From the womb, John was called. Remember his father, Zechariah, and his mother, Elizabeth, they were barren. So Zechariah was, uh, served in the priesthood and was, they drew, they drew lots and Zechariah's lot was drawn and so he went into the temple to offer incense. In the temple he has an angelic visitation where an angel from the Lord says to Zechariah, I've heard your prayers. I'll give you a son. Zechariah leaves the temple, you remember, and he's unable to speak until the day that John was born. So imagine all of Israel's gathered together to worship. Zechariah goes in and comes out mute. And he's making hand signals and trying to write, but he can't speak. 
And then Elizabeth, who's aged, is pregnant. That's not a tumor in her belly, that's a baby. And, and so everyone, um, they, they watch for John the Baptist. There's something strange about him from the start. Here's the prophetic word given over John's life by the angel in Luke 1, 14. You will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit of power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. What do we find here? That the Baptist, John the Baptist, was set apart from conception. He was anointed, filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. You should think of Jeremiah saying, where the Lord says to Jeremiah, from your mother's womb I set you apart. And in many ways, John the Baptist is the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy. From the conclusion of Malachi until John the Baptist begins to prophesy is a period of about 400 years, sometimes called the silent years, because there was no prophetic word for that era. John the Baptist breaks the silence as begins to herald, Behold, the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the earth. An angel comes to bear an old couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and your mind should think of Abraham and Sarah, God giving a child to the barren. John was peculiar. A Nazarite, no wine to touch his lips. I've always loved the theory, and I have no backing for it. It doesn't mean that it's true. Um, But clearly, John the Baptist was born to elderly parents. Most scholars will tell you that John the Baptist's parents most likely died in his early years, so he would grow up as an orphan. Many suggest that John the Baptist may have been raised by Essenes in the desert. The Essenes were a group of Jews who lived separate lifestyles, separate, lived out in the desert, dedicated to God. Again, there's no proof to that theory. It's just a theory. Outside of the fact that we do know that John the Baptist lived alone in the wilderness. He comes out of the wilderness like prophets do. When prophets are introduced into the Old Testament, they typically don't come with a backstory. They just show up one day. Elijah came. And John the Baptist in the same way, he just shows up on the scene, begins to howl and herald, calling all to repentance. He comes dressed like Elijah, remember, in camel's hair. He looks different. He smells different. He talks different. He eats different. I was at Joe's Ice Cream with my family this week. And my wife said, you need a haircut, big dog. And I said, John the Baptist did not cut his hair. And then I mumbled, nor did he eat Oreo ice cream. John the Baptist has the boldness to stare down the Pharisees, the religious elite, and call them to repentance. When you've been alone with God, when you've met and encountered the glory of God, the presence of God and the person of the Holy Spirit, when you've been shut away from Him, you're not so concerned about what you look like or what you dress like or what the crowds think of you. John the Baptist was solely concerned with what God thought of him. And so he comes out dressed how he wants to dress. And he comes out and speaks how he wants to speak. And he calls with boldness, turn and repent. He's not caught up in performance. He's not caught up in religiosity. He's just ate up with the fire of God within his soul. 
And we've got too many people in the church today who are caught up with platforms and too many who are caught up with their persona. And we've got men who spend more time thinking about their outfits than they do their sermons. And by God, it's an hour today for men to stand up filled with the Holy Ghost and to preach the gospel of truth. I'm reading... um, Jonathan Edwards on the affections, where Jonathan Edwards writes about the affection of man. He's largely writing against the idea that some churches are filled with emotionalism. Jonathan Edwards led in one of the great awakenings, the revivals, and oftentimes their critique was, your people are just emotional, it's just emotionalism. And so Jonathan Edwards writes that um, all the way through the scriptures, he shows this brilliantly. He is literally the sharpest mind of his day. He shows that God always condemns coldness of heart. And what it means to be quick to hear and soft to heart is that your affections are moved upon quickly. You hear God and you respond. He says he doesn't, and he never refers to worship as just an expression of emotion. He says affections are something deeper than emotion. Emotion comes after affection, but affection is the place in your heart where you are fully convicted that the Lord is God and I will serve Him. And so when worship begins, some may look at you and say, oh, you're just emotional, but what you're, but, but it's not emotion that's causing me to worship. It's affection. It's covenantal commitment to the God of Scripture. It's deep, deep commitment and conviction that cannot be torn away from me. And, and holiness, biblical holiness, it's not religiosity. I understand there is a such thing as a religious spirit. But I clearly, I ain't tucked my shirt in today because I didn't want to tuck my shirt in today. Our elders like to pick on me because my shirt tail's hanging out. They don't know what's cool. I promise you, they don't know. Um, <laughs> I'm joking. I'm, I'm, I'm really not. I think I can say with conviction. I'm, I'm not driven by religious performance. I, I, don't, I really don't care what you think about my dress or my, I'm, I'm good. You do you, I'm gonna do me. How about that? Um, but my commitment to holiness is driven by my deep desire to serve and love Jesus alone. I'm not driven by what you think or what anyone else thinks about me. I get that that happens in the church. My affections have been consumed by the glory of God. I have known Him in the quiet place. When you're not around, no one to perform for, I have encountered the God of Scripture and His marvelous glory has filled my closet as I've prayed. Holiness, biblical holiness, is undergirded by affections for God and God alone. So when John the Baptist comes out of the wilderness preaching and howling and proclaiming the truth of God, he cannot be intimidated by man because he's ate up with desire for God. It's popular in our day. We're in an hour where what's called deconstruction has become very popular. Deconstruction is not new, it's old, but it's having a fresh wind. Deconstruction has mainly happened in the younger generations. It's the idea of deconstructing your faith to examine what's true and not true. And it typically leads to walking away from your faith. And the ideas are usually aimed at the church. It's like the church is religious. Therefore all Christ, all of Christianity is, is religious. It's like the pastor who was preaching holiness had an affair. Therefore it's all fake and a sham. And I'm saying that all of that is a red herring. I don't care if the pastor down the street has an affair and cheats on his wife. I love Jesus. I don't care if the church fails me or this church has financial problems. I love Jesus. I don't care what you do or don't do. You cannot shake me from my unwavering commitment to serve the God of the scriptures and to burn all the days of my life for Jesus. 
it's a red herring to say, look at this doctrinal position, or look at the Crusades, or look at, I understand that the Crusades were wicked in some instances. I love Jesus, and I cannot back down from this sold-out conviction to the God of Scripture. Seth and I, when we were younger, Pastor Seth and I, I was living in Spartanburg and Pastor Seth was living in Columbia and he sent me a book to read and the book was on what I call um, like hyper grace or sloppy grace, greasy grace. Basically the guy was saying like, um, live however you want to live, it doesn't matter, Jesus loves you and you just do whatever you want to do. Essentially was the theological point of the book. Someone had asked Seth to read it and Seth was like, Seth didn't agree with it either. We were reading it and so um, he said thank you for clarifying that. Um, and uh, so we drove to meet in the middle. I was bringing him his book back. We were going to have dinner. I'm a smart man, so I forgot my wallet. Uh, so Seth had to buy dinner. And I didn't fill my car up with gas before we got there, so then he had to fill me up with gas too. He got played, yo. Um, and Seth and I were sitting in the car, and we were talking about the doctrine of this book, how we didn't like it. And I remember I, I began to cry. You know, men aren't supposed to cry around other men. That's a thing um, that I live by, okay? Um, big old sissies. Um, and so uh, I started to cry, and I said, Seth, I just don't want to displease him. I don't care about the theology. I don't care about your doctrinal argument and my doctrinal argument. I want to love and serve Jesus with all of my life. Beyond the theological arguments, there's a conviction in me. I want to bless him. I want to serve him. I want my life to be wrung out for the glory of Jesus. I want him to be pleased and satisfied with me. It's not about my desires or me wanting to fulfill whatever lust comes my way. It's about me wanting to bring on the face of Jesus So smile and delight and pleasure. And that's where biblical holiness begins. Just loving him. And John the Baptist says to the world, I don't care what you think of me. You won't intimidate me. You won't shut me up. They eventually have to cut off his head to get him to stop. You cannot intimidate the conviction out of my soul. I live for him and for him alone. There was a man sent from God. He was not the light. There was a man sent from God. He was not the light. This is the key to all effective gospel ministry. You must know in the depths of your heart that you are not the light. John the Baptist's ministry was not about being seen or being heard or having a platform so that the crowds came to to enjoy his gifting. He was not the light. He knew that he knew that he was not the light. The last thing we need is more worship leaders who think that the crowds come to hear them sing. The last thing we need is more preachers who stand to display their great intelligence. The last thing we need is more performance in an entertainment-driven society. You must know that you are not the light. It is a foundation to all gospel ministry. John 1.15 John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. John the Baptist is the older cousin of Jesus. Jesus was born after John the Baptist. Yet John the Baptist says, He who comes after me is greater than me because he was before me. How is he before you, John? He was born after you. John is clearly pointing to the eternality of Jesus. He who comes after me was before me. He ranks above me. That ought to be the testimony of your life. He ranks above me. He was before me. John 3.30 
The disciples of John come to him as Jesus' ministry has begun, and they say, Look, John, Jesus' disciples are baptizing more people than you. Aren't you jealous? And John says, He must increase, and I must decrease. If that statement is not branded on your heart, you have no business in gospel ministry. It must be branded on who you are. He must increase, and I must decrease. Our modern culture has told us that all of your life is about displaying your gifts and displaying your greatness and proving to your family that you're prominent and successful and dominant. And I'm telling you today that all of your life is about saying this, He must increase and I must decrease. All of your life is about saying this, He was before me. My life is fulfilled as I proclaim the beauty and the glory of who Christ Jesus is. There is nothing good in me outside of what he has deposited by the grace and goodness of his spirit. I must decrease. He must increase. If you leave here and say, what a great preacher Caleb is, shame on me. You ought to leave here and say, what a glorious Christ we serve. What a majestic Jesus. What a beautiful Savior. My job is to cast your eyes upon him. And if I, for a sliver of a moment, begin to operate out of a way that draws attention to myself, I've missed the foundation of gospel ministry. If you, for a sliver of a moment in your workplace or in your family life, begin to draw, to draw attention to how great you are, you've missed your ministry. Your life is about joining the, the chorus of creation and the miraculous works of Jesus, the testimony of Jesus, the prophetic words of the Spirit in declaring Christ is Lord. John was not the light. Jesus does refer to him as a lamp. In John 5.35, He was a burning and shining lamp, Jesus says. You were willing to rejoice for a while in His light. Lamps burn out. Lamps are short-lived. Lamps are dependent upon oil to make that thing burn. Jesus says, He was not the light, but He was a lamp that burned out for a while. And for a time you enjoyed Him, and then a time you rejected Him. Your life is short he must be dependent upon the oil of the Spirit to burn for a while. The best you can hope is that you have 60, 70, 80 years of burning for the gospel of Jesus, of declaring His beauty and majesty. And as we prepare to close, consider verse 7 through 8 here. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through Him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Hear the repetitive nature of John's writing. He was not the light. He came to bear witness so that he could witness, so that all might believe through his witness. He testifies. He witnesses. John 1.26. This is John the Baptist speaking. I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. I baptize water, with water, but among you stands one you don't know, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. John 1.29 Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
What profound prophetic accuracy. All of Israel was looking for a king to come and reign. And John says at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Behold the Lamb who will shed His blood for the forgiveness of your sins. No one else was prophesying that. And John the Baptist says, Look! God's sacrifice! Imagine Abraham going to sacrifice Isaac, finding a goat in the thicket, and God will provide. Here, John says, God has offered provision. There is blood to be shed for the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb. John 1.30 This is He of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because He was before me. John 1.33-34 I myself did not know Him, but He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is He who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John says, I didn't know him, but I saw the Spirit of God descend upon him like a dove. I heard the Father say, this is my Son, with whom I am well pleased. He was the one who will baptize you with fire. The pinnacle of John's prophetic ministry is declaring the Lordship of Jesus. The pinnacle of your personal fulfillment. Forget everything you read about what it means to have a meaningful and effective life. Throw it away. The pinnacle of your existence, of fulfillment, is declaring the Lordship of Jesus. It's proclaiming to your co-workers, your children, your grandchildren, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All you can hope to be is a witness heralding the good news of the gospel. This is your purpose. Learn from the Baptist. We are not the light. It is not about me. It's not about you. You're not the center of the universe. Our lives are not about jockeying for position. My life is not about trying to prove that I am something. My life is fulfilled and standing and proclaiming Jesus is Lord. Jesus is good. Jesus is beautiful and merciful and wonderful. And you don't know life until you know Him. Now one more thing I'll show you as we wrap up. John 1, 35-40. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked as Jesus walked by. And he said... Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following him and said to them, What are you seeking? And they say, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. What John just told us is that there were two disciples of John. Jesus walks by. John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb. The two disciples leave John the Baptist and they follow Jesus. They spend the day with Jesus. Then John says, And one of the disciples was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. When you read carefully, you're left to ask the question, Who is the other disciple? Why did you just tell us who one of the disciples was? Who was the other person? Most scholars tell us that this is a literary device. John leaves that question dangling because John is not ready yet to introduce himself into the story. He will much later. In other words, the other disciple, the Cambridge commentary, for instance, says emphatically there there is no doubt that the other disciple was John the Beloved himself. If that be true, 
then John the Beloved, the writer of this gospel, was a disciple of John the Baptist. And he stood with his, his teacher one day, John the Baptist. And John the Baptist saw Jesus walking by and said, Behold the Lamb. And John the Beloved left his teacher to follow a new teacher. And in the new teacher, John the Beloved became an apostle of Christ. One of the most important apostles theologically. He obviously writes the Gospel of John, the three epistles of John, the book of Revelation. He becomes a very important uh, figure historically. John runs and excels. He's a foundation of the church. And he got there because John the Baptist declared the Lamb of God and stood back as his disciple left him to follow another man. And John says, the friend of the bridegroom celebrates the marriage of the church to the bride, to the bridegroom. Jesus says, John the Baptist is the greatest born of men. In a way, Jesus is saying, he is the greatest born up to this point, the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophets, the one who declares what they all declared, but declares it even more so, declares here is the Savior of the world. Here is the one who undoes the curse of Eden. Here is the one who fulfills Israel, whom all the nations shall be blessed. And John the Baptist says, here he is. He's the greatest of all men born of woman. But then Jesus says, but those born of the kingdom, those born of the heavens, He'll be the least of. In other words, in a strange way, Jesus is saying there are a new people coming. And the new people will go even farther than John the Baptist. They'll have the spirit of prophecy. Think Acts chapter 2. When the spirit is poured out on the church, Peter quotes Joel 2 in saying that all shall prophesy. Sons and daughters shall prophesy. Slaves and bondservants shall prophesy. The Spirit of God will be poured out upon all people and they will John the Baptist to the earth. They will carry the mantle of Elijah and declaring to the nations, they will under the hand of the Spirit belong to me alone. There'll be prophets and prophetesses coming from the wilderness, stepping out of the secret place, declaring with strange and peculiar boldness, here is the Lamb. Here is your hope. Here is your Messiah. No one else. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the door. He is the resurrection and the life. He alone offers life and offers life more abundantly. The church is called to carry that mantle of, of the prophetic spirit resting upon her to declare to the nations, it's just Jesus. Just Jesus. Seth, come for me. John was a man. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Not anything was made that was made without Him. High theology. He's the light of the world. The darkness couldn't overcome Him. There was a man sent from God who was not the light, but bore a witness. You're called to bear witness, to recognize that our days are short, a lamp quickly burning out, and declare the beauty of Jesus. To quote Paul, who was the intellectual elite of his day, Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, 
the Greek philosophers, Greek poetry. Paul knew it all. And he never says, look how intelligent I am. He says, all of my life is rubbish. It's all pointless. Except for knowing him. For knowing Jesus. Living and serving Jesus. Your best hope, your highest call, is to bear witness. Your highest call is to say with John the Baptist, I must decrease so that he may increase. Our goal is not to compete with any other people. It's not to strive and jockey for position. Our goal is to allow vibrations to ring from my vocal cords as I shape my mouth to say, Jesus is the victorious king of the universe. Now, if you'd stand to your feet for me. Altar team, if you want to get in place. First thing we want to say is if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus or you've never prayed to ask Jesus into your life, you've never given your life to Jesus, you're not a Christian, we want to say this to you. God is here today. He is in the room this morning, ready to give you new life. The scriptures teach that all of us sin. All of us have fallen short. You can say, Caleb, I've stolen, lied, cheated. I've committed this sexual act. I'm addicted to pornography. God couldn't possibly love me. And we would say to you, no, God will love you today in Jesus. You say, God has to punish my sins. And we say, oh yes, he does have to punish your sins. He punished them on the back of Jesus. Jesus bore your shame. The guilt of your life has been paid. You can be washed this morning, totally clean. Your slate would be totally clean. Your guilty conscience dealt with today. You do not have to leave this room this morning with guilt looming over your head. You don't have to leave this room this morning without knowing that God calls you son. That God calls you daughter. You can leave this room sure that heaven is your home. That hell has no grip over you. You say, what do I have to do, Caleb? Nothing. Turn and believe. Get in the altar this morning and dedicate your life to him. Make him Lord of your life. You don't got to jump through any hoops. Just believe on him in faith. Surrender. If that's you this morning, we want to ask you to come to the altars. We want to pray for you and you can be sure that you leave this room a son or daughter of God fully forgiven. Next, there were a few other words. One that someone may be struggling with a deviated septum or trigger finger. If you're having any physical ailment like that, we'd love to pray for you. And then there was a word that there are some here this morning um, who are struggling with their own relationship with their father. That you maybe had an abusive father or an absent father or just a father who intimidated you. And that you're living from a place of, of baggage, of hurt. And we felt today that the Lord wants to set you free. That God wants to pour on your life the love of the Heavenly Father. That you could love your children and your grandchildren. Love your neighbors out of the love of God. Maybe you didn't receive it from your earthly father. But God says today, I will show you the love of a father. If that's you, we want to ask you to come to the altars this morning. So the altars are officially open. If you need Jesus, if you need healing, or you want to pray and ask God to heal your heart from any father wound, I want to ask you to come now. Please don't be bashful. We need you, Jesus. Go ahead and come. 
We need you, Jesus. Make us witnesses, make us holy and anointed witnesses to declare the truth of who you are. It's our greatest aspiration, Jesus. It's your name that we pray, Lord. Amen, amen. Well, you guys know how we do. The altars are going to stay open. Worship team is going to hang out. If you need ministry, don't rush out of here. If not, you're officially dismissed. We love you so much. But y'all just be respectful of the folks who maybe want to receive ministry. God bless you.